Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. This week, I've brought a special treat to all of you fans of spycraft and all that sort of wizardry. One of the newspapers that I read, The Interpreter, which I read together with Bellingcat, which provide me with sources about what Russia's government's doing, and the guys who wrote about the GRU agents in the Skripal murder case... These guys have now published, in total, eight KGB manuals, which weren't available to the public previously, and they're just something new. As they themselves say, the still-classified manuals expose the methods of the Soviet Union's secret police not only to surveil, but suborn their own citizens and foreigners in a vast project to extend the Kremlin's power around the world. And these are internal documents from the 70s and 80s, and they were used in an era before the internet and, you know, all the electronic surveillance. However, if you can um, delve in deep into those things, you can understand that, well, these methods are actually used today. And not just by the KGB, but by the CIA too, I presume. And they're obviously now amplified with new technology and everything. But it's really interesting to read how the KGB operated, what were their best practices. And we have to say thanks to Michael Weiss, the interpreter's founding editor, about uncovering four of them. And now, in the latest edition of the documents, which I found through my friends at Medusa, the interpreter have basically gathered all eight of them here. They have published some comments on it, but they also put up the full texts in Russian for download. So obviously, I dug through all of them, because this is my primary thing that I want to do. So, well, without further ado, we're going to start on digging through what actually KGB taught their agents to do. And in the middle, in the middle here, we are doing some charity work this week. And we'll be doing and repeating that for a while, because we will be helping out real Latvian scientists do their thing. But more about that in the middle segment. Right now, I'd like to start with, quote, exposure of the enemy's setups dangles in the process of development of persons of interest to the intelligence. In 1971, a French run, by the way, 50. 
And here's the whole introduction. I won't be reading the whole document because I have like eight documents in total to cover in this episode. But introduction is interesting, and um, some excerpts from the documents will also be obviously provided. The clash of the two world systems has intensified in recent years. The imperialist countries are blocking progress. The socialist countries' intelligence play an important role in exposing the imperialist's aggressive plans. Above all, they help recruit people sympathetic to socialism. Enemy intelligence's primary goal is to prevent penetration. They organize setups for this purpose to gather intelligence, expose intelligence agents, paralyze their activity, and organize provocations as well as disinformation. A document of British counterintelligence illustrates the important role setups play. Quote, We must always have in mind the opportunity of setting up highly qualified double agents of such value to socialist intelligence agencies that in time they will transfer them from official communication with the local mission to the intelligence network. There has to be constant vetting of agent networks acquisitions and persons of interest to intelligence to expose setups. Each new contact has to be carefully analyzed by agents as to their behavior and they have to vet persons of interest thoroughly. And now this awesome document covers all sorts of things. For example, in the chapter, Methods of Penetration. <clears throat> Enemy intelligence organizes their efforts in characteristic ways. 1. Use of especially prepared staff official or agent. 2. Recruiting an intelligence operative from a socialist country and setting him up to recruit others. 3. Re-recruiting an exposed agent from a socialist country. And this textbook does not look at the last category, just the first two. Enemy intelligence gathers a lot of data on prospects and put them under surveillance when they come to their country. They study their work regiment, behavior at work, personal life, relations with others in their foreign colony. They make contact through official state work, diplomatic receptions, during movie showings, press conferences, etc. Sometimes they use public places and pretend to run into a prospect accidentally. It could be a restaurant, cafe, park, museum, athletic club, whatever. Example. Intelligence officer Stoyanov in 1968 met a local lawyer, Veronets, that's his code name, who tried to convey his progressive views, then reported to the residentura, like residency, the agent network space. Uh, if you want to know more about the terms, listen to my episode where I gave the whole document of training of the KGB and their operative manual with the agency work. So, they reported to Residentura and got approval for another meeting. But he failed to vet Veronets and get info from him at several meetings. He noted that Veronets gave him info on Catholic trade unions and asked where he got it. He said through the head office of the City Association of Catholic Trade Unions. At the next meeting, Veronets pointed out a woman, Soroka, and said he got it from her and introduced her. She said she was the deputy secretary of the Association of Catholic Trade Unions and had to keep contact with foreign diplomatic missions. But the center could not verify them, and the residentura didn't vet them. Stoyanov returned to the motherland and turned Veronets and Soroka over to another agent, Grigoryev. Soroka then tried to recruit Grigoryev, then the residentura got to work checking him and analyzing the info and realized it all came from Italian counterintelligence. The agent should have realized that Veronets' claim to get interesting info at the very first meeting should have been a tip-off. That would have avoided two months of Italian agents working over these Soviet agents. What's interesting, however, is that further on in this booklet, uh, they state about some interesting facts about how the counterintelligence actually work by just creating white noise. Quote, Sometimes the enemy sent plans that were so obvious that they would be deliberately exposed, thus making the socialist intelligence agencies reluctant to cooperate even with real prospective helpers. In 1968, the Czech embassy in France received three issues of a classified journal of aviation of interest to military intelligence. They were unable to find out anything about the sender. Then, 
Albert, again in air quotes because they use just code names, came to the Czech embassy to ask if the three journals were received. Agent Novak spoke to him, but he was evasive and that he didn't return or give his address. The Czechs were maybe overcautious, but they couldn't verify him. Enemy counterintelligence sends anonymous letters to organize provocations and set up plants. They might even try to recruit agents not for their own country, but others. At a diplomatic reception in Ankara at the United States Embassy, Polish intelligence officer Dombrowski met John, a journalist who came from a meeting of the Central Treaty Organization, the Baghdad Pact, which was later then dissolved in 1979, from West Germany, where he was based. John expressed anti-American views, and he said he had only came to the meeting to annoy Nixon. He planned to gather materials that would expose the United States' role in the Near and Middle East. He said he was for closer relations with the socialist countries. John passed very interesting information about the meeting to the intelligence officer. This impressed Dombrowski and dulled his vigilance. He kept passing info, refusing compensation, but then let drop one day that his wife was seriously ill and her treatment ate up all his savings and he needed to ask the agent for cash. Then he started receiving payments, but the Residentura noticed his info was of little value and not secret. Once he said he was going to travel to the near and middle east and could perform tasks. Once he got an assignment, however, he said his trip was cancelled. This put up red flags. He was vetted again, and from newly arrived info, it was determined that he was a CIA agent. Enemy intelligence also uses these methods on agents they've detected from socialist countries. 1. Closing their eyes to real reasons of motivation and calling on patriotic sentiments. 2. Intimidating with prospect of police or court prosecution or firing from their jobs with compromise. 3. Exposure to his homeland's intelligence. The enemy puts great psychological pressure on them. Even the most thorough training can't predict changes in behavior, so watch out for them. Now again, further on, this is um, probably the best chapter of this book. Study and vetting of persons of interest. In difficult settings, especially the capitalist countries, you need to have Residentura put under clandestine surveillance certain trust in the government officials. The United States, France, England, Federated Republic of Germany, and other imperialist countries have put in measures to isolate officials from socialist institutions, and government officials in their countries are trusted with classified information only if they're isolated. Due to a presidential decree under a loyalty oath, every official has to report his contact with socialist states. In France, the foreign industry employees have to report on all countries with foreigners and emigres. Under these conditions, attempts to contact such officials leads to exposure. Therefore, other trusted locals must be used to make the approach to them. It's easier for them to collect info. Only verified, loyal, and ideologically compatible intelligence officers of socialist countries can take part in vetting a target of recruitment. They have to have certain skills and also personal and work skills to do this, or undesirable consequences occur. Example. Soviet intelligence officer Ivanov, who worked in the West European country, got from his agent Molodoy, with whom he had long been out of touch, a report that the cousin of agent Savva worked in the foreign ministry and had documents about the League of Arab Nations. Molodoy gave a good recommendation of the cousin and said he would cooperate with intelligence for material again. He was checked out and put under surveillance. It turned out Molodoy was a central intelligence agent using Sav as a dangle. The resident of Bulgarian intelligence tried to acquire an agent at a West European foreign ministry. But because of difficult conditions and active work of the local counterintelligence, it was found that she was a dangle. The residentura got a tip about a typist called Livia, age 25, single, but it wasn't prudent to work her up as her contacts would become known to this counterintelligence. 
There is an had information that Livia was the school friend of the wife of a tested and loyal agent, Georgi. He was a doctor with a private practice and no relationship to the government. Therefore, contacts with him weren't as difficult, so they decided to use him to check out Livia. He said she was progressive and positive about socialist countries. She was attracted to a co-worker who was married with children but had an affair with him. He dropped her after she had a child by him. So her material situation was worse and Georgi worked on her politically, although once she called him a communist. He said he wasn't, but shared some of the Communist Party's ideas. Livia began to tell him of the material she typed at the foreign ministry. He was able to get information from her, and ultimately, documents. And she was made an agent, and valuable info was acquired. But don't think that the KGB were just doing things abroad with people and trying to figure out when they were being uh, harassed by them. Another interesting document is that a lot of tourists, again, when I mentioned the interest episode, they came to the Soviet Union. So another manual, this time from very late Soviet era, kind of the newest version, is Political Espionage from the Territory of the Soviet Union. Let's get on to that one. This book is also particularly interesting as it would be the running guidelines in the field during the Mr. Putin's era in the KGB when he was in East Germany. From this book, then this is how Putin used to think about this, and I'm pretty sure this has influenced modern Russian intelligence as well. Page 20. <clears throat> Several million people visit the Soviet Union every year, and tens of thousands of them stay for longer periods. Many of them are carriers of secret information. Meanwhile, thousands of Soviet citizens go abroad to both capitalist and developing countries where they visit facilities of interest to intelligence. Several thousand foreign government representatives in the USSR are of the most interest. 2,000 diplomats, 100,000 foreign students and 800 universities, of these about 60,000 from capitalist and developing countries. About 10,000 military people from 30 countries are trained in the USSR. Some 60,000 to 80,000 Soviet citizens make business trips abroad. Academy of Sciences provides wide opportunities because of 200 partnerships with academies in capitalist and developing countries. The largest group of foreigners are undergraduate and graduate students, often on government exchanges. The Soviet Union provides scholarship through its Committees of Solidarity with Asia and Africa, the Committee of Youth Organizations of the Soviet Union, the Friendship Societies, etc. Children of government officials are often among these students, so they are a good prospect for recruitment, even from countries far from socialist orientation. Many with Soviet diplomas then get significant positions in government, political, economical organizations. The National Liberation Movements in France provide some of these students who are already ideologically compatible and who often have information to use to intelligence. Did I mention in the last episode that Hayo Benes' dad was from one of these students studying in the Soviet Union? Yeah. I'm pretty sure he got in there too. Those in internships in science especially are trying to get a good recommendation in the USSR so they can keep visiting it when their internship is over. Military trainees from generals to privates out of interest, especially given the role of military in politics in the developing countries. Others are on scientific, cultural and economic exchanges often are prosperous in their own countries and are good for direct or indirect ties to targeted organizations. Now, further on where uh, this goes into a bit of detail, from page 23 to 24. Science is a particularly rewarding channel, as increasingly scientists are called in to advise governments. Major American embassies abroad have special science groups which include scientists from research centers. 
In the leading capitalist countries, science centers, individual scientists, specialists in the field of social sciences are brought in to draft and establish government foreign policy and military strategy doctrines, and also for preparation of specific political, economic, and military activities. So the State Department, Pentagon, CIA, National Security Council, and the U.S. draw in specialists from universities and science centers. These can be recruited to enable penetration into United States governmental institutions. The same goes for England, West Germany, France, Japan, and Italy. The same goes for businessmen interested in expanding trade with the USSR. There are also the various Soviet civic organizations that can be used for intelligence because they have exchanges with foreigners. The youth organizations, the Committee for the Defense of Peace, the Friendship and Cultural Societies, as well as Solidarity Committees and the Novosti Press Agency, the APN. Churches and religion play an important role in the capitalist countries, have serious influence on the political situation in their countries and on the activity of state and government agencies and civic organizations. So, they are a target. The Russian Orthodox Church and the Armenian Gregorian Churches have parishes in the US, Canada, Latin America, France, West Germany, Italy, Japan, Finland, Turkey, India, and Morocco, and have broad contacts with Muslim organizations as well, which is of great interest in connection with the importance of the Islamic factor in the politics of many Arabic and other developing countries. There are also Soviet Baptists and Buddhists. Among tourists visiting the Soviet Union are political figures, government officials, businessmen, journalists, etc. with access to secrets. While the brief nature of their visit and their packed programs can make it hard to recruit them, some are already known to resident tours abroad and can be worked on further, and always an opportunity is created to conduct the relevant operational measures. And then about the emigres. People with relatives in the USSR who stay for three to six months are another target. 1.5 million Russian emigres, more than 2 million Ukrainian, 1.5 million Armenians, 800,000 Balts. Many have preserved their national cultural ties with relatives and are of undoubted interest for the external intelligence of the KGB. Of course, they are convinced carriers of bourgeoisie ideology as well. Hostile and prejudice regarding the socialist system are state and infected with anti-communism. The enemy's intelligence activity uses the science cultural, sports, and tourist channels for their own intelligent tasks, and also conduct prophylactic work on those going to the Soviet Union, putting them under surveillance of their own assets in the USSR and intercepting undesirable contacts. After these foreigners return home, they are debriefed by foreign intelligence and followed in order to set up provocative anti-Soviet actions. Thus, insufficiently prepared actions from the professional regard in developing foreigners from USSR territory may be used by the enemy for compromising scientific, cultural, and other ties with the Soviet Union and damaging intergovernmental relations of the USSR with certain capitals in developing countries. All of this requires from intelligence agencies from the Soviet territory an unconditional maintenance of security for the measures conducted and close cooperation with the counterintelligence divisions of the USSR KGB. Science centers, as well as various party, business, etc. offices abroad, can be reached by Soviet visitors abroad when they can't be by the KGB legal residentura. Directorate RT will then plan on various trips abroad by the necessary agents or trusted persons to perform certain assignments. Obviously, this is just the beginning of the whole thing, but then we go to the specifics. While sometimes the foreigner will be ideologically compatible, often he is only partially compatible, or not at all. A target may even be an opponent of socialism, but needs cooperation with Soviet intelligence, and may help it to resolve certain problems. Thus, for example, the arms race and the threat of a nuclear conflict leading to the destruction of civilization on Earth forces citizens of capitalist countries, including those who hew to a bourgeoisie ideology, to cooperate with Soviet organizations and institutions, and also directly with intelligence, for the sake of preventing a nuclear disaster. 
And then they speak about the material goods. Material motivation for cooperation in the Soviet era was very uneven. Either the individual or his institution, they might need some just money from the Soviet science institutions, for example. And uh, this is from the book again. Material incentives play a very important role in the bourgeoisie society. They are at the foundation of bourgeoisie ideology and morality, which can be successfully used by the KGB's external intelligence. From maximum success at the last stage of recruitment, go deep into the motivations of why the subject wants to become an agent, either directly or under a false flag, his character, motivations, interests, behavior. The moral and psychological basis offers a wide spectrum of moral, psychological, and emotional factors. Individual elements of this basis are, in particular, career ambitions, prestige factors, a sense of revenge, hatred, and love, maybe nostalgia, personal attraction to the operational officer or agent, fear of consequences of the illegal deed commitment. Recruitment is strengthened, above all, by giving the person brought into collaboration concrete intelligence tasks, the performance of which are related to violation of certain legal or moral norms in his country. And this illegality also puts on a different thing further on. Recruit must be brought deeper into violation of certain legal, administrative, or moral standards of his country, which confirms his readiness for practical intelligence cooperation and makes it impossible or difficult for him to refuse such cooperation in the future. This is tricky, because the subject may have had second thoughts. He wants to go back and tell his own institution or intelligence of his country about his contacts. It is especially risky to transfer to the KGB residentura abroad an agent not established in practical work, who was recruited with compromising materials, since recruitment under pressure of such materials may leave the foreigner with a dislike towards intelligence, to its individual representatives, and maintain an internal dissent against the promise to cooperate given under coercion. To reinforce the trusted ties with recruits that don't have access to intelligence information, one has to reinforce the recruitment special measures. It has to be made sure that these measures are developed and conducted to create the impression in the foreigner of his involvement in practical intelligence activity. For this, his activity is oriented towards collecting characteristic and particularly compromising data about his fellow countrymen, to turning over to intelligence unofficial news of the situation in his association or embassy. This sometimes yields good results as preventive measures can be taken against his fellow countrymen, or they can be expelled from the Soviet Union on the basis of the target's reports. A student can be given tasks when he goes back to his homeland for holidays, for example, such as finding out sensitive information, conducting active measures, or retrieving a controlled plant from a specifically prepared hiding place, or even just sending mail. And this is just crazy and amazing, because... Most of this is just basically psychological tricking and vetting. I'm pretty sure that this is pretty standard among uh, intelligence officers everywhere in the world, not just in the Soviet Union. But uh, obviously you can see that the called socialism thing is passed through, because ideological purity, well, is a necessity if you work through this. And finally, from this specific booklet about how do you actually do these old things and what are active measures, really. There's a chapter called Active Measures, and they're... Just splendid. Active measures are for a good cause. Improving international relations, disrupting the aggressive plans of imperialistic states against the USSR, weakening the political, military, economic, and ideological positions of imperialism. Influencing countries to positions advantageous to the USSR, supporting national liberation movements, undermining and compromising anti-Soviet emigre organizations. Service A undertakes active measures, as do KGB divisions with the obligatory approval of Service A. Methods of conducting active measures may vary, depending on the nature of the tasks to be done and the presence of agent and operational capacities. The most widespread are disinformation, exposure, compromising, special positive influence. In practice, these methods are often used in combination with each other, which raises the effectiveness of the actions performed. 
And um, this is interesting because uh, here we come to a term that you might have heard and pay close attention to the next quote. <clears throat> and this comes from the KGB manual on how to conduct political espionage. This information is the conspirational promotion to the enemy of fabricated news, especially prepared materials and documents, so as to lead him into confusion and motivate him to decisions and actions that meet the interests of the Soviet state. Disinformation measures are undertaken to undermine the positions of imperialism in various countries in the world, increase the contradictions among imperialist states, bourgeoisie political parties and individual figures, to weaken their positions, counteract the unleashing of anti-Soviet campaigns and also for the purposes of influencing the outcome of negotiations not only on political matters, but in conducting major trade deals with foreign companies and firms. Exposure as a method of active measures is used to reveal to the world public or the public of individual countries secret anti-Soviet plots, aggressive plans and intentions, bad deeds and other such actions of military political groupings of the enemy, state agencies, parties and their leaders, and also the revelation of subversive plans of imperialist states against the socialist countries, national liberational movements, progressive regimes and democratic forces. Exposure operations can have significant influence on the formation of public opinion abroad in the direction favorable to the Soviet Union. They enable the strengthening of anti-American sentiments in various countries, the growth of the anti-war movement, and so on. Compromise is used to damage politically or morally states, political, religious organizations, and anti-Soviet emigree centers. Special positive influence involves making an influence on a government, party, individual political, state, or civic figure, representatives of business circles, advantages to the USSR, as a rule, within the laws of the country under surveillance. Now, think about it, and uh, always put this into context if you think about it. Like I said, Vladimir Putin worked while um, all of this actually happened. He worked there, and this was his manual. Now, and whenever you hear someone spreading, like, fake news and stating that something's super fake, uh, understand that this creation of white noise, that was important too. But moving on to next brochure. This one is called False Flags in the United States Institutions in North Africa. Or, Acquisition and Preparation of Agent Recruits for the Purposes of Intelligence Penetration of United States Institutions on the Example of a Number of North African Countries. This is technically called an analytical overview. You might have uh, fun with this. <clears throat> From the book. In recent years, legal, and air quotes, residents of the KGB find it harder and harder to recruit United States officials as counterintelligence has been strengthened, personnel increased, and new operational and technical means are used. Americans stepping up the security of their buildings of interest to Soviet intelligence is a major issue. They inspect and track employees of these institutions better and their contacts with the Soviets. Two, they take measures to expose Soviet intelligence agents, they organize things, they conduct surveillance of agents and their connections. This survey will cover the role of recruiter agents in activating work with employees in American institutions. Some questions of methodology in selecting recruiter agents and organizational work with recruiter agents, their training and preparation, including for false flag work and also the particularities of their communications and maintaining their security and checking up on them. The work of KGB is made much harder by the harsh counterintelligence measures of locals in Morocco and Tunisia in conjunction with the intelligence agencies of US, France and West Germany. In the countries of socialist orientation, particularly Algeria, where the political and operational setting for Americans is less favorable and where they sense the heightened attention to themselves of the local counterintelligence, the fulfillment of requirements for security are carefully maintained in United States institutions. Strict inspections are being conducted, including body searches, firing of suspicious persons, checking of personnel using surveillance equipment. 
If, before, the method of direct work on Americans in a number of cases yielded positive results and justified itself, in current conditions, work from these positions has become very difficult. At official USA and representative institutions, there are strict instructions not to allow contact with the Soviet workers beyond job duties. Thus, many Americans refuse contact with Soviet citizens even without prejudices toward the Soviet Union. The Soviets are put under greater surveillance, which means recruitment attempts run risk of being exposed and are an occasion for provocation. Increasingly, the enemy is undertaking such drastic measures as detention and arrests of the employees of our residentura. And again, this material further on goes to, actually, what are the conditions for these false flag operations in North Africa. And um, among those are... Quote, presence of a large Western European colony in the countries under review, which gives the residenturas the opportunity to recruit from among its representatives the recruiter agents for work on the personnel in the USA facilities. Activity of leftist, leftist forces in the countries of the region, in whose my low the residenturas can recruit and train recruiter agents and spotters. Diversity of political parties, organizations, and groups, which creates a favorable soil for selection, creating of legends and the use of false flags. Despite strict control of the United States facilities, there are some factors that make recruiting easier. Americans might behave more freely abroad than at home. Many live in separate villas. Their behavior is not supervised, especially in pro-Western countries like Morocco and Tunisia. Vividly expressed individualism and a constant striving for personal prosperity, uncertainty of the future often leads to some Americans getting into conflict with the requirements placed on them by government service, including, in particular, their strive to use their stay abroad for personal enrichment. The cheap workforce, the high level of unemployment in the North African countries enable Americans to have personal house servants who are relatively accessible to a residentura from the perspective of acquiring from its midst an agent's network capable of assigning tasks on the American line. Number of local workers in the American facilities are rather large. For example, in Morocco in 1986, there were 96 Americans and 268 local personnel. Think about it, because obviously it was easier for the KGB to recruit people in these networks in North African countries. Everyone was under strict surveillance if they visited the USSR. But, you know, if you're just in North Africa, like, who would expect people getting American secrets through North Africa? One of the best things that actually work out here, because, hey, much easier to work with. The book also provides an example, quote, In one of the countries of the region, the residentura for a long time could not acquire agent positions in the United States Embassy because the USA intelligence kept heavy control over the contacts of the entire personnel. The residentura took agent M to develop an officer of the counterintelligence organ of the country of stay from the perspective of using him as a recruiter. M was brought into cooperation under the Soviet flag. His operational training was based on performance concrete assignments from the residentura to study persons of interest to us. Through M, the residentura conducted the development and recruitment of K, a citizen of the country of stay and a technical employee at the American consulate under the flag of the local counterintelligence. With the help of K, an operational and technical measure was successfully undertaken. Characteristically, after the discovery of the stashes, the enemy, despite every attempt, could not establish the involvement of Soviet intelligence to this measure. It is also important to note that M in the future was successfully used as a recruiter since K did not betray our agent, fearing repressive measures of the part of the local intelligence services. In using local intelligence people, you have to be careful not to expose them to local counterintelligence itself, which is watching the American facility. This is the most interesting part about this situation is that you don't have to actually hire Americans to spy American facilities, which is great. And this is sometimes often hard. For example, quote, Finding a target for recruitment as a recruiter agent can take two, three years, as long as finding a good source of information. They only become useful even some time after that, sometimes a rather long time. 
Given heavy counterintelligence in Tunisia and Morocco, agents have to do a ton of work to prepare. They have to meet with targets many, many times, which can be hard doing without getting exposed. A reason restraining more active recruitment work in Northern Africa is insufficient knowledge of the contingent of people who have access to employees at U.S. institutions under legend. The agent has to have a very clear understanding of his target. He has to figure out what categories of local citizens and foreigners could maintain direct contact with Americans in these facilities under our pre-made legends. Now, isn't this amazing? And then, of course, they talk about the embassy staff itself, from page 35 to 36. Staff in United States embassies of use to the Soviet Union, military, technical personnel, coders, secretaries, administrators, who are hostile to the Soviet Union, can be reached by false flag, either real or legended. Example, M, a Soviet agent already watching an American office in a North American country, spotted R, a man who wanted to put aside a large amount of money for when he returned to the States. He would make entirely speculative deals to raise the stash. M was limited in what he could do as a Soviet, so he enlisted V, a European businessman who got to the American into some illegal deals and thus created the pretext for his recruitment. V created a legend that a prosperous European firm had ties to American corporations. M was impressed as he was looking to find a good position with the help of a partner, who turned out to be a Soviet agent in the United States. The presence of a competent spotter, skilled selection and qualified management by the residentura of the recruiter agent were decisive conditions for the successful completion of this complicated recruitment, which required significant efforts over a fairly long time. It's best of all when the false flag is related to the professional or social position to the recruited agent. Then he will be more confident in his actions and have more trust in those planted next to him. Thus, for example, for a recruiter who in the past was a high-ranking diplomat with a large circle of friends, pro-nationalist-minded, a nationalist organization can be chosen. For an agent working as a technical employee in the Western office, France, Spain, etc., the flag of that office, for an agent who is an active member of the party sympathizing to the regime of one of the influential Arabic countries, for example, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Arabia, Iraq, the flag of the intelligence service of that country can be planted. In false flag operations with Arabs, be sure that the target and the recruiter belong to the same ethnic group or faith. Recently, the opportunity for false flags in penetrating United States facilities has enlarged in North Africa with the appearance of national liberation movements, radical regimes, transnational corporations, and oil-producing countries. For Palestinians working in the United States facilities, the Palestinian flag can be used, given the large number of various political platforms of Palestinian organizations, each of which has its own intelligence service. So yeah, this this is another nice example how you can go to a third country uh, using the KGB terminology and recruit someone. Because, hey, you don't have to recruit anyone directly. You can pretend to be some other country's secret service and unknowingly work for the KGB. I'm pretty sure that at least, well, some of uh, you listening out here, if you're old enough and you are of a political organization and if you've been approached by someone, you know, trying to help some organization secretly, you might have been, you know actually targeted by the KGB, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that there are organizations today all around the world who think that they're helping their motherland while actually doing some um, secret stuff for other things, so to speak. But yeah, we have more books to cover, and clearly, clearly this is going to be a bit long. Hey everyone, hope you are enjoying this episode. If you haven't still, you should join our Discord server as well as follow us on social media to keep up to date with all things Eastern Border. But today I'd like to talk to you about something science-related. The Eastern Border believes in supporting scientists who are working to create a better future for all of us. So a big shout out to the Functional Brain Project, whose aim is to create a realistic and 100% lifelike brain simulation program. Run by the Latvian Transhumanist Association, they study practical 
practical approaches to running large biologically realistic simulations of brain tissue using consumer-grade hardware. When realized, their program would become an invaluable tool in medicine, the development of artificial intelligence, and many other fields. Because the brain is such a complex organ, this research requires heavy-duty machinery, which the scientists currently are only able to borrow. Our government does not see this as a worthwhile investment at the moment, but luckily nowadays the people hold an equal power to make things happen. Raising 7,000 euros or 8,000 US dollars would allow the Functional Brain Project to become more independent, build larger experiments and have more resources to put into dissemination of their findings via peer-reviewed specialist journals. If you are passionate about the future and want to help this project become a reality, information about the project and how you can make a contribution is in the description of this podcast. That's it from me now. See you online. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And the next part is how literally anyone from all of the post-Soviet countries could be turned into an agent. Because the following manual is um, <clears throat> Use of Soviet Committee for Cultural Ties with Fellow Countrymen Abroad in the Interest of State Security Agencies. And this is a couple of pages from the book. <clears throat> Let us cite the example of the work of one of these groups. In 1965, a small patriotic group was formed in Hanover, headed by a certain Simeonov, a traitor to the motherland, sentenced in his day by a Soviet court to severe punishment. The group established contact with the representative office of the Soviet Committee for Cultural Ties in Berlin. For these purposes, the committee was used for both correspondence as well as trips by the group members to Berlin for personal meetings with officers of the representative office. From talks of these emissaries, the impression was formed that the Simeonov group was well-organized, regularly conducted patriotic meetings with fellow countrymen, and had launched work to attract other immigrations to the organization who lived in Hanover and its suburbs. Soon after preliminary clarifying our attitudes toward him, Simeonov himself came to Berlin. Although he was subject to detention in accordance with the sentence of the Soviet court, it was decided not to detain him, since this could compromise the Soviet committee, and most importantly, sever at the root the foundations of the patriotic movement among fellow countrymen, which had been started in the Federal Republic of Germany. After obtaining the relevant recommendations for further development of the patriotic movement and expansion of his group, Simeonov returned to Hanover. 
Meanwhile, a serious mistake was committed in the work with the Semyonov group. The thrust of it was that the staff of representative office and also operatives related to this matter did not take into account the possible interference in the work of this group by West German intelligence services. They did not immediately take measures to vet the members of the group and its activity among fellow countrymen, having believed the information passed to them by Semyonov and his close aides. However, subsequently this mistake was corrected. The first serious suspicion emerged after the receipt of information that the patron of this group of patriots was a Catholic priest, who provided church space for the group's meetings and himself often attended them. A check of the priest through operationalists indicated that we were dealing with a former Hitlerite officer, a participant in the March on the East, who maintained a connection to the local police agencies. Whether or not, you know, actually some counterintelligence agents were Nazis or not, yeah, that might be totally false, but it's ideologically better and purer to make sure that, uh, well, of course you would use ex-Nazis in the West to compromise the Soviet Union. That makes for better morale of KGB agents. Further on. Further vetting actions conducted subsequently indicated that Semyonov himself was a provocateur. Taking into account the information obtained, the appropriate correctives were made in further work with this pseudo-patriotic group. The main attention of the operatives was aimed at discovering the West Germany agents' network among the group members and determining which of these persons were suitable for re-recruiting. In connection to this example, it should be noted that in the approach of creating patriotic groups, libraries and correspondence networks, the Soviet committee should not be taken lightly. The main thing is to see that the group not only disseminates our ideology, but that it is under our control and not the influence of the enemy's intelligence services. It must be known fully that the patriotic group, whose leadership was seized by the intelligence agencies of the enemy, can cause irreparable harm to the patriotic movement of our fellow countrymen. With its help, the intelligence service may, using the cover of the authority of the Soviet committee, disseminate our ideology in such a distorted form that will cause harm to both our ideology and our government. The intelligence services of the capitalist governments conduct serious work against progressive emigre organizations as well, which had emerged long before the creation of the Soviet committee, believing that stepping up the activity of these organizations in recent years is closely connected to the work of the Soviet committee. By infiltrating its agents' network into these organizations, the enemy's intelligence services strive to resolve both counterintelligence as well as intelligence tasks. On the one hand, they try to expose the connections of the progressive organizations with the Soviet committee and embassies of the Soviet Union in the capitalist countries, they try to establish the persons making this connection, and also fellow countrymen who sympathize with the motherland and so on. And on the other hand, they try to create for their own agents' network the opportunity for eased entry in the, in the USSR through various channels including by invitation from the Soviet Committee. Thus, the Canadian RCMP's counterintelligence service, for the purposes of exposing from among emigrants persons who visited the Soviet Union, planted a certain chameleon who served as a middleman in filing petitions by Ukrainian immigrants to enter the Soviet Union. By spreading among the Canadian Ukrainians the rumor that such forms are filled out only in the Russian language, Chameleon gained the opportunity to meet with many of his fellow countrymen who wished to visit the USSR as tourists and also on private business. He used this circumstance to discover intentions and study the moods of certain individuals, learning their attitude to the USSR and to local authorities as well as their affiliation to progressive organizations, and reported this all to the RCMP. Chameleon tried on the same basis to establish close business contact with the officials of the embassy's consular section, but they rejected his services. Well, what can I say? Good job, uh, Canadian Secret Service.
The Belgian counterintelligence actively developed in the Union of Soviet Citizens, SSG, uniting fellow countrymen with Soviet citizenship, but who lived permanently in Belgium. The main objective of its attention were the members of the organization who had the opportunity to visit the Soviet Union, including people connected to the Soviet Committee. Counterintelligence had dossiers on many members of the SSG, above all on its activist corps. It was conducting study and development of these persons from the perspective of their possible recruitment. Thus, for example, SSG member Becker was being developed. When Belgian counterintelligence learned from its agents' network that Becker intended to go to the USSR on personal business and at the same time visit the Soviet committee, he was invited to the police. One of the officers interrogated Becker in detail about the state of affairs in the SSG, his intentions regarding the trip, and then tried to recruit him, blackmailing him with the fact that the police supposedly had materials on him. While doing this, he held in his hands a bulging dossier. Becker refused to collaborate, but the counterintelligence agent who had talked with him still gave him his telephone number and asked him to get in touch in the event difficulties arose, promising to help him. Becker, of course, informed the Soviet embassy of what had actually happened. And further on, because this document is super interesting. Progressive organizations and groups, as well as their press organs, are subject to constant harassment on the part of nationalistic and other anti-Soviet formations. One of the basic methods in the work against patriotic groups are informants' reports to the police and counterintelligence agencies of the capitalist countries, on the leaders and activists of progressive organizations. Thus, in the United States, for a long time a patriotic journal, The Sinim Okeanum, or Beyond the Blue Ocean, which propagandized love for one's people, history and culture, published official materials on the achievements of the Soviet Union and often spoke against nationalistic organizations, was published. Informants' reports systematically went to the FBI about the editor of the journal, writer, as a person connected to the USSR embassy who received funds from it for publishing the journal. In connection with these informants' reports, writer was summoned to the FBI several times, interrogated and intimidated. As a result, Reiter was forced to drop the publication of this journal for the sake of his own peace and the welfare of his family. Often, the intelligence services themselves and the bourgeoisie press are used in the provocations against progressive organizations and groups. Thus, Belgian counterintelligence exploited the fact of a pity violation of the customs regulations by one of the heads of the SSG, who worked in the Brussels airport, broadly advertising this incident in the press, linking it to the activity of the Soviet agents network in Belgium and reporting that the culprit was a member of the SSG. This disrupted the work of our agents' network in the Belgium, of course. It should also be noted that all progressive emigre organizations, groups, and press organs, especially in the United States of America, are included in the list of saboteur organizations. In this connection, the Soviet Committee, and especially the Residenturas, when they are involved in this, must observe the maximum caution and conspiration in work with the progressive organizations. This is particularly the case with those countries where the progressive organizations are in a semi-legal position. This is why the pro-Soviet organizations and all these actual fan clubs of people who were like hardcore fans of the Soviet Union were, like I mentioned in one of my previous episodes called Shit Eaters, because they're really useless. I mean, why would you work with someone who's blatantly super pro-Soviet? Obviously, under this surveillance and everything, they won't be able to do anything. They don't even want to get paid, they're just super weird. For the most part, of course, there were agents sent in there and the KGB used them and GRU too, to a certain extent, but... It was much more pointless getting that one house cleaner for an American guy in Morocco. That guy was valuable, but these organizations, they would be valuable if they wouldn't be so much scrutinized. And uh, finally, from this book, from page 64, as an example, let us review the case of Capitan, or Captain, through whom state security agencies were developing a staff member of the American military air intelligence, a Russian by ethnicity. The state security agencies received a tip on Kapitan from the Soviet committee, where a letter was received from from his fellow countryman, Stari. 
In that letter, Stari, or the old one, by the way, but that's a code name, provided some information about himself, his relatives and friends. In particular, he indicated that his nephew, Capitan, was involved in secret work in the United States Army. This report drew the attention of agents of state security who decided to obtain more information about Capitan, using the correspondence with Stari for this. Stari had to be drawn into correspondence with the Soviet committee and several letters were exchanged with him. In the letters to study, our interest to Capitan was carefully encoded. Through indirect questions, we managed to obtain basic data about Capitan and the address of his place of residence. A check of Capitan on the lists and through the residentura indicated that he was an officer of U.S. Air Military Intelligence. It was decided to immediately hold the correspondence with study through the Soviet Committee and start the development of Capitan. But it turned out later that this measure was taken too late. When our agent visited Stari, through whom access to Capitan was intended, and introduced himself as a Soviet citizen, Stari immediately warned that his correspondence with the Soviet committee was known to the FBI, which was in the process of holding all these letters. He said that he had the assignment to immediately inform the FBI about people who came to him and would be interested in Capitan. Stari advised our person not to visit him anymore to avoid unpleasantness. Study turned out to be an honest person and did not give away our agent, but it could have been far worse. The reason for this failure is only that when the operatives first caught sight of Capitan, they selected an incorrect path to study him. Instead of getting information about Capitan from the same study clandestinely, they launched an open correspondence, which gave the enemy the opportunity to intercept our activities. I hope it makes you think, because for me, these are just reports of the Soviet documents. And for you out there, at least those who actually lived through the Cold War era, I hope that all of this actually gives some nice insights. During kind of my work, I understood that I won't be looking at eight documents today, but only seven, because grabbed on and started reading all these documents, and then I noted that the last one, the eighth document, Work with Agents Network, uh, that's the same one that I translated in full and made an episode about it a year ago, which is really interesting, because... Uh, yeah, the interpreter, guys, if you want to actually, you know, not bother with translating that on your own, go listen to my older episode about the poll of work with Agents Network document, which I acquired from our own archives. So, really, feels kind of nice when uh, I'm quite competent at doing this on my own, and now it's getting published by an international press as something new and totally leaked. Hey, I don't know, if you want, you can just poke them about it and uh, tell them that the eastern border was um, a bit of a year ago uh, in front of you before this. But yeah, as funny as it is, let's carry on, because, wow, we still have three documents to work with. And, for example, one of them, fundamental directions and targets of intelligence work outside the country. Essentially, the intel targets list. The introduction states, quote, before World War II, Soviet intelligence focus was on fascist Germany and imperialist Japan, which were secretly preparing war against the USSR. Now the main enemy of the Soviet Union is the United States of America, although revanchism in West Germany cannot be out of sight. Each country has its own set of concerns, i.e. Bulgaria has to attend to Turkey and Greece and Czechoslovakia attend to the West Germany and Austria. The targets of socialist intelligence are capitalist states, military, political, and economical blocs of these countries, and various international organizations, except those of socialist countries, of course. In the narrow sense, the objectives are the government and their other institutions, parties to be penetrated, with three main lines noted above, by obtaining secret information, conducting active measures to weaken the enemy, exposing the enemy's plans for preparation of a new war by imperialistic states, support of national liberation movements, battle with enemy intelligence and counterintelligence agents, and providing security for institutions and citizens of socialist countries abroad. Political intelligence tasks on study of capitalist countries' foreign policies. This is, again, split in various points. 
it is necessary to get documents and materials on a secret political, economic, and war plans regarding the USSR and other socialist countries. These include transcripts of meetings, secret instructions to diplomats and ministries, plans for creating military blocks, etc. B. Sabotage activity of the main imperial states against socialist countries. United States, United Kingdom, West Germany, France, Japan. Also, get intel on their activity in each other's countries. Also, intel from NATO, CATO, Baghdad Pact, Asian Pacific Council, their military and strategic plans, secret agreements, reports from leaders, inspection trip reports, transcripts of meetings. Get intel on role each member plays, taking into account American imperialism directs it. Find contradictions and disagreements among its members. For example, conflicts between the United States and West Germany, France, UK, Italy on economic issues. Differences between the UK and the US on Middle East as well as France. It is important to get info on nature and depth of these conflicts, finding the weak links, deepening the conflicts and contradictions. Finding out which new members they would want to bring in. C. Plans directed against the national liberation movements in Africa, Asia, Latin America. Plans on their puppet governments and neo-colonialist methods. Their economic, political, and ideological penetration in order to thwart them. Getting secret info on methods and means to suppress independence movements. Holding events to expose their plans. Finding out secret agreements and exposure of them. Getting intelligence on concessions, loans, and everything else to expose. D. Activity of political parties and organizations' leadership roles, as well as opposition, if they influence domestic and foreign policy. Their attitudes toward the socialist countries, meeting transcripts, statements made privately to small groups of people. E. Contradictions between capitalist countries on key international policies. Acquisition of secret information, especially in the United States, UK, West Germany, France, Japan. Details on their differences. Positions of party leaders, memos on differences and disagreements. Transcripts of ambassadors' meetings. Instructions sent to posts of the record statements of government and party leaders. Here the document just becomes excellent. The documents of intentions and plans and thoughts are the most important to acquire. Because the imperialist countries are afraid when they see the success of socialist countries, as the monopolist circles of the United States of America suppress workers and democratic movements and disrupt socialist community. They create aggressive blocks and fuel the arms race. But the imperialists are checked in by the Soviet Union's nuclear potential and prevention of war. For this, intelligence has to find out the military plans of imperialists, the state of their economies, their activity in intelligence organizations, etc. Now isn't this great? We're using our nukes to make sure world peace is in effect. Well, I guess that's happening now too, but uh, a bit of madness is always necessary if you think about it. In this early chapter, they basically stated their intelligence targets... And these guys worked really hard, and next example from the book is one that's um, showing the interplay between uh, the CIA and the KGB and how, like, Spy Eat Spy game was going on. Because they actually worked a lot of their political goals, and never mentioned specific countries, because working with the politicians and, and trying to get their own assorted parties in power was another thing that both the CIA and the KGB and GRU tried to do. So, from the book. Another example of a reactionary party's destruction. In a certain capitalistic country, the issue was being decided whether to keep a democratic regime or liquidate democratic achievements, which the American imperialists were especially interested in, having unleashed an anti-democratic campaign in this country through their intelligence. I think this might be Latin America, though, even though whenever KGB documents mention democratic regime, they mention, like, hardline socialism. Well, obviously, but, but carrying on. A progress democratic party that took part in the government was subjected to increasing attacks, especially by the National Party, the most reactionary in the country. There was fear this party would create a crisis and take power. 
With the approval of the center, one of the socialist intelligence agencies hatched an active measure to weaken the reactionary party and prevent them from isolating the Democratic Party. An agent, codenamed John, had earlier been recruited from the National Party. He had personal differences with the head of state and the head of the party, and kept to the sidelines of party activity. The resident would have decided to use John for an active measure. He said he had a number of supporters in the party. He wanted an immediate open attack on the leadership, the creation of an opposition newspaper, and bringing in a regional leader of the party as the head of the new party. But the residentura thought his plan was premature and instructed John to hold back or he'd simply be expelled from the party. He was told to gradually unite his supporters while maintaining an outward appearance of loyalty and keeping the residentura informed. Then the residentura learned about the plans of reactionary parties to provoke a government crisis. John was ordered to speak out against the government with his group, then appealed to change the party's leadership. The party leadership was thrown into confusion. Many members said they supported John, and the party split within a matter of days. This helped the other, our, Democratic Party, to stay in power. Yeah, manipulating political parties uh, since forever. That's a nice, fine tool of everything, really. And finally, from this nice document... Let's talk about fake news and disinformation again. This is what the KGB had to say about it. Disinformation is one of the effective means to influence various sides of political and economic life, parties, organizations. These pre-planned actions are aimed at leading the enemy into confusion on various issues and ways advantageous to socialist countries. I.e. spread white noise. White noise is more believable than, you know, outright lies. White noise just throws wrenches into everything and creates confusion. Work on disinformation requires from intelligence exceptional attention, detailed knowledge of the issue being prepared for disinformation, and careful study of all circumstances concerning the target of disinformation. To the extent possible, one must know what means the enemy has or will have to obtain reliable information on the given issue, the degree of enemy's knowledge of the issue, etc. Disinformation documents are developed in such a way to be plausible in content as well as form. The fabricated facts or events in such documents must be logically justified, relevant to the existing course of events and must be combined with real facts. The means for planting disinformation materials on the enemy may be various. Press, radio, agents network, confidential conversations exposed by technical eavesdropping on the enemy. Losses of documents or invented creation of conditions for the theft or secret confiscation of documents by the enemy containing disinformation. The most often used and effective means of disseminating disinformation, and listen to this closely. The most often used and effective means of disseminating disinformation are the agents' network channels and the use of detected enemy eavesdropping technology. The transfer of disinformation materials by foreign intelligence through its planted agents has the advantage that disinformation, if it's well prepared, will be quickly reported to the offices, in the government, general staff, etc. So think about it. The KGB knew something about social networks before social networks were a thing. That is why you often see all the fake news spreading out on Facebook or, or Twitter like wildfire. Because, well, the KGB handbook states that it's the most effective way. So, you know, Google before you share, you just might be playing into something. And I'm pretty sure that the secret services of other nations do this. Personally, I think that it's important to be informed and the whole weird-ass thing going on around there and that, and one should really keep your head above water and just not blindly believe things. If the KGB wrote about that's the most important way and the best way how to actually wreak havoc in the capitalist countries, how to spread this white noise, then you know what? If they wrote this in their handbook, then that means they did it, then that means they considered it valuable enough. Think about it before you share stuff on Facebook which you haven't checked. Also, carrying on. Study the target carefully, check all the materials about it. Choosing the moment is of great significance. Keep in mind that it is useless and even dangerous to conduct active measures if they are based on materials that do not reflect the real state of things. Example. 
A certain socialist country's intelligence agency regularly receives materials on internal conflicts in a political party in a capitalist country. The analysis and rechecking of these materials was not done with sufficient thoroughness, as a result of which the residentura came to unfounded conclusions that the conflicts in this party had gone so deep that two wings might be formed in it. It was thought that most party members would go into the progressive wing and the leadership would be left with having to make a compromise with the splitters and make concessions. But in fact, it was otherwise. The conflicts were not so deep, an attempt at splitting the party was risky and dangerous. And that's how it happened. While the party was damaged, its reactionary part, which is a large part, preserved its unity and the opposition was isolated and then expelled from the party. Think about it. If you stay kind of united and, you know, if you don't allow people to make sure that things run deep, these guys in the KGB were super interested in uh, running things deep. Also, then there are the scientific and uh, technology intelligence thing. And this book is also contained in the chapter called Some Basic Problems of the Interest to STI, Scientific Technological Intelligence. <clears throat> and I'll just read a short excerpt from this before moving on with the next book. But yeah, I have access to all these documents, and if you, if you want them, I'll probably might use them in future episodes too. This is just the cherry-picking the interesting stuff from all of them. The aggressive imperialists of the United States of America and NATO don't count the moral resolve of their soldiers in preparing for a new war. This is one of the reasons why they use various automatic forms of weapons and weapons of mass destruction. Enormous sums are spent on developing atomic and thermonuclear weapons and their delivery and targeting systems. Also expensive work on developing bacterial and chemical weapons. Poisonous substances designed to disrupt the nervous system. Great attention should be devoted to rapid reaction bombing aviation, long-range escort jet fighters, guided missile systems, intercontinental ballistic missiles and radiation weapons. Also electronics, especially radio, radar, automatic systems, calculation systems for guided artillery weapons, detection of enemy fire. Synthetics, plastic with new features such as heat, acid and frost resistance, concentrated fuel for jet mortars, high temperature capacity, iron and steel, special alloys needed for new forms of weapons. Priorities obviously include atomic energy, natural and artificial materials, thorium, uranium, plutonium, equipment and technological processes, data on theoretical designs in nuclear physics, study of atomic nucleus and its properties, construction of atomic and thermonuclear bombs, atomic energy stations, engines for submarines, boats and planes, plasma nuclear engines, spaceships and satellites. See? And then again, they move on to what they want to get from uh, counterintelligence, what they want to get from the UK and other countries... They were always interested into disruption, confusion, and counterintelligence as well. I'll definitely return this document in full when I'll have more time to do so. And the next thing that I got access to is <clears throat> Recruitment of Agents Network. And I'm sorry that this episode is a bit dry, but this time it's like all about content, because, you know, I was giggling super hard when I got all these nice books. From Introduction. Agents have to be ideologically trained in thought conspiracy as well how to conduct themselves properly in work, society, and life. Agents have to be constantly recruited because some drop out naturally or are removed for cause. Their motives and capacity for getting intelligence have to be suited. Failure to prepare recruitment sufficiently can lead to worsening relations with capitalist countries. Exposure of the intelligence agent and recruit and can cause harm to intelligence. It is hard for socialist intelligence agencies to recruit the citizens of capitalist countries, so they have to influence their worldview and show their discipline. Intelligence operations aren't just about gathering information, but about disrupting hostile plans of the enemy, intercepting the sabotage of socialist countries and actively influencing the life of capitalist states to the advantage of socialist countries. Recruits should target places where government's political line is developed and where the most secret political documents are located, such as cabinets of ministers, foreign ministry, leaders of political parties, major monopolies, especially as related to Soviet countries. And then, recruitment contingent, like people who actually got recruited. 
Two tendencies in the world. Number one, rapid economic growth of socialist countries and improvement of their population's welfare and success in the fight for peace. And two, reaction, economic and political instability of capitalist countries, impoverishment of workers, sabotage of peace, colonial wars and worsening of contradictions. Therefore, socialist countries are getting millions of sympathizers who are abroad contingent for recruitment by socialist countries. See, this is all the manuals here. This is a comment from me because it was important that the KGB agents themselves really believed this stuff. They were all ideologically indoctrinated. This was super important as, obviously, the higher-ups in the KGB worked with people down the ladder. It's much easier to work and believe that you are on the winning side, that you're on the good guy's side. Not to say that, well, the other guys from the CIA were uh, particularly... Uh, shall to say, moral in any way or form or anything like that. But you can see here from these books in general that all the KGB agents actually believe this stuff and at least were, were trained to do so. But carrying on. Hundreds of millions of people see now that capitalism leads to economic anarchy and periodic crises, unemployment and poverty, wars, so opposition is growing in government, military and science. The peace movement has more and more people of various classes, social groups, parties, unions, including world-renowned scientists, engineers, doctors, business people, religious figures, and PT bourgeoisie. Some of these participants in the peace movement can be brought into intelligence work, but each recruit has to be studied carefully as his open opposition may be more useful in fighting the capitalist world than his work as an intelligence agent. Hundreds of millions are also involved in the national liberation movements in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. While they might not be for a socialist system per se, they're against imperialism. Contingents for recruitment. Coders, secretaries, stenographers, couriers, typists, etc. with access to classified materials. Also, many emigrates from the socialist countries in the United States, Canada, Latin America who can be used as they have relatives at home. There's an ebb and flow of available contingents depending on circumstances. Social countries become more powerful and influential, and this has an impact. But certain failures and mistakes in socialist countries, including intelligence failures as well as anti-socialist propaganda, can have a negative impact. Police oppression and other negative factors in capitalist countries can reduce the contingent due to fear, but also induce outrage which can be used. There is increasing repression against communist parties and progressive organizations. Socializing with people from socialist countries is used as sabotage and can even lead to arrest. Very difficult conditions for recruitment exist in capitalist countries, but existing residentura and illegals network can help. Ultimately, proper methods of recruitment and management are required. Eligibility for recruitment is determined by age, sex, ethnicity, religion, social material and family status. Also the person's temperament. Gradual involvement may work for one recruit and direct offers of secret collaboration work better for others. Above all, the actual possibilities for intelligence work has to be studied for recruits and their ability to penetrate facilities. An ideal example, bureaucrat in foreign affairs ministry with access to coded telegrams. If he's devoted to capitalism, he's not a good prospect, but if he hates the capitalist system and thinks it'll be replaced by socialism, or at least is unsure about the stability of capitalism, he's a good candidate. Another prospect would be one with debts if these can be taken care for him. It's very important to understand the recruit's political views before recruiting, which can be hard as progressives hide their views to avoid arrest or loss of prestige or trust in society and their family. Now about the methods. Use legal methods first to study the prospect and use his associates and connections. Existing covert agents and central intelligence officers can also have information. Recruiter would study a political party's information and members, for example, and then contrive to meet them at a film showing. For example, codename Lower, who wants to increase friendly relations with the Soviet Union, but hides his use in his party as to not lose his position. He was recruited also because of his anti-American views. Citizens of socialist countries are restricted in their movements in the capitalist countries and are under surveillance which makes the role of the agents network more important. 
The recruiter shouldn't reveal to their agent their interest in a subject for which they have a lead, but just get a list of his friends, a characterization, etc. This is especially important in the early stages of recruitment until he is vetted. Case. An intelligence operative had to make an agent's network in diplomatic circles, but had no connections except one former elderly journalist who had no ties to the diplomatic world. But since the journalist had once published a small journal edited by a prominent Frenchman, the operative made an approach to the Frenchman and asked if he wanted to edit a diplomatic journal. The journalist and French editor were then given the journal to put out, and in six weeks all embassies and missions had copies as well as local aristocrats. Once the Frenchman had business cards printed with his title as editor, he could entry into the embassies to get leads for recruits. Recruiters have to be careful not to damage leaders of progressive organizations who would be compromised by exposure to their collaboration. They shouldn't recruit members of communist and workers' parties because it endangers those parties as a whole. Experience of recent years indicates the imperialists will make direct provocations in these cases and thus obtain the formal right to persecute these parties. Now, isn't this excellent? Now, let's, let's talk about the cases and the process of recruitment itself. There are various bases of everything, and they kind of speak about a few of them, namely three, which I'll give you. <clears throat> Recruitment process. The target's material as well as spiritual needs are studied. There are three types of work. Ideological, political, material, and psychological. The threat of exposure is part of the psychological line and could affect the material. Emotions such as jealousy, love, and hatred are also used. 1. Ideological political basis. This has to do whether the target's political views coincide with the interests of the socialist camp and whether they are firm enough to serve as motives. If they are ideologically compatible, citizens of capitalist countries may not want to collaborate with the intelligence of socialist countries, as practice is thought far from it. They might have a false understanding of its role, a sense of patriotism to their homeland and a fear of being exposed. But sometimes the idea of just peaceful coexistence is enough. Sometimes the candidate has to be drawn in with further ideological work, i.e. explaining how the capitalist countries are exploiting his country and about the peace-loving nature of the socialist countries. The candidate will come to understand that he can't stay on the sidelines given American imperialist expansionism. A Soviet agent called Sufrant had a connection called Schmidt, who was a major mathematician and an engineer and a head designer of an artillery factory and an immigrant. He had several sisters still in the Soviet Union with whom he had lost contact after immigration. He wasn't involved in politics and hated communism. An approach was made to have Sufrant convince Schmidt to meet an officer of a Soviet trade agency. It was determined that while he feared communism, he hated the Germans due to their militarism, and this was used as a basis to work on him to explain the peace-loving foreign policy of the socialist countries. Later, Schmidt then turned to him to help find his sister to get her assistance, which strengthened their ties. He was worked on. He came to see the error of his ways and became convinced that he had to fight imperialism if he wanted to pose German militarism. He then agreed to pass on a type of ammunition he had designed and then continued to work in Soviet interests. Illegals should only try to recruit those that are ideologically compatible, that they're sure and ideally in third countries, to reduce risk, as they must expose themselves to intelligence operatives. Intelligence officers can then make a trip from the center in Moscow to vet the recruit. Ideologically compatible are more reliable. B. Material basis. Look for a strong motivation to be recruited, like illness, debts, illness in the family, large family, education for children, securing pension, etc. Look for merchants who want to make a profit in socialist countries, government officials willing to sell their country's secrets due to material needs. The person raised in the bourgeoisie country will need to have personal success as his chief goal in life, not the joint work of people, especially Americans. The sociologist Robert Merton says success is understood as gaining money, which is rooted in American culture. Sociologist Wright Miles says money is the only indisputable metric for success. More Americans have been recruited on the basis of material incentive than those from other countries. 
But such agents aren't as reliable as those recruited on ideological grounds. Therefore, they need constant ideological education. Especially recruitable are those who like to party excessively and get into debt as a result. Case of a coder in an American embassy in a capitalist country named Finn, who was courting Nona, the daughter of a famous doctor, who wasn't interested in him. Finn was loyal to the United States regime, but was vain, loved to dress well. Nona was part of the peace movement, was sociable, liked to go out to restaurants and clubs. Grom, an experienced agent of the Residentura, knew Nona's father. And I like how the code name Grom exists. Like, shout out to Mr. Bolelli, this is Grom. <laughs> and if you like Conan, you know what I'm talking about. So, with Grom's help, Nona was recruited and then Finn was drawn in, using the acquaintance with the father. Nona was assigned to draw in Finn by going out to restaurants and theaters with him and getting him to spend money, so he needed cash. She gave him loans. Finn was eventually recruited in order to pay his debts. See? Everything can be manipulated. You find out what the people want, and then you give it to him. And, you know, if they don't want something, make them want it. And then give it to them. <laughs> it's just fantastical. It's like the pure assembly of how to make sure that they work for you. And C. Moral psychological basis. Use features such as vanity, envy, jealousy, vengeance, obsession, sympathies, love, hate, etc. to recruit people. Don't go by socialistic morality, but the morality of the bourgeoisie country. For example, in Iran, it is not shameful to have multiple wives, and in some Western countries, sexual immorality is ignored, and the porn industry facilitates this. This is really from the book. I kid you not, they literally want to use porn and sexuality for recruitment. Because, obviously, Freud was right to a point. While theft is used as wrong in socialist countries, a theft of a million in a capitalist society like the United States is viewed as big business. Case of a journalist agent, Claude, who was given the assignment to become acquainted with a young single woman, Jeanne, who was a secretary to an ambassador, and to study her for recruitment. He seduced her, went to dances and restaurants with her, she fell in love with him, and Claude began to see her less... She was hurt, but he said while he loved her, his journalism career was suffering. He hinted that if she would show him material that crossed her desk, he could meet with her more often. Sometimes Soviet intelligence uses the threat of exposure to recruit brutal people who have been compromised. The recruiter should appear to offer help to the recruit to get out of a bad situation rather than directly pressuring him. Theft of funds, extramartial affairs, etc. can compromise the target, as can exposure of participation in plots to overthrow bourgeoisie governments. You can only compromise a person if he hides these facts and fears their publicity. Which basically means that, yes, KGB did threaten uh, LGBT people with exposure. But they actually never interfered with uh, LGBT people and other kind of sexual and other minorities if they were public and open about it. That is why the more closeted you were, the more dangerous you were there, and that is why I had to study a part of this. And, like, uncloseted LGBT people, or, or deviants, as they call them here, uh, they were actually not communist agents, but if you were closeted, then yeah, that thing would be used against you just to threaten exposure. Oh, and at this point I have to say that uh, pigeons are the coolest of birds. That's that's a thing that I promised uh, the people in my Discord channel, which you should join. I'll put uh, the link in the show notes. Further on, <clears throat> you can only compromise a person if he hides these facts and fears their publicity. Compromise has to be backed up with documentation, photos, EA, someone with an affair. Getting such documentation can be very complicated. A person recruited with compromise cannot be viewed as reliable, especially if hostile to socialist countries. There is a case of a female agent planted with a diplomat in a capitalist country. She obtained his trust to the point where she could read his correspondence and get a key to his safe. Knowing the diplomat was cowardly, he was recruited by showing that his secret documents had been taken from his safe to compromise him. In order to save his career, he agreed to collaborate. 
This doesn't always work, as there are cases where a target agrees to cooperate and then backs out and reports the recruitment to his counterintelligence. This should be prevented at any cost. So yeah, I hope you liked uh, this short insight into the KGB training manuals. Trust me, they're all saved in the original Russian in my documentation, and we'll be going through them. And I hope that, well, this will provide us for even more materials to make sure that we can bring you the best content ever. And truth to be told, I'm reading them, and I'm just thinking about how all of this is still relevant today, by all sides and all secret services. This is one of those episodes that hopefully made you think... May analyze information more, and yeah, it's funny to read about fake news and disinformation, and how much you can trust the stuff that you see on the internet and uh, on the news without checking it, because that's a concept old as intelligence agencies themselves. So don't fall for it. Think with your own heads and apply knowledge that you've acquired anywhere. So yeah, the Sudanya Tvarishi, and see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.